Okay, this week's study opened in Exodus. The people of God are slaves. And I wonder if any of you felt a moment of confusion as you got the context of Exodus, maybe you would say, hold on, you said that this story was one big story. You said Genesis to Revelation was one big story. Well, this doesn't line up with how Genesis closed. Because what was Genesis about, guys? It was about a big God making big promises to the children that he loves. Well, when we open the book of Exodus, the children of God are slaves. And we're looking for those promises to kind of pull through from the first book to the second book. And it already looks like it's unraveling. We see that God promised people, land, and to be a blessing to all nations. So we look and we're like, well, there's people. I mean, there's some 2 million children of God, Israelites, but they're slaves. And they're away from home. They're nowhere close to the land to the land that God had promised to them. So that doesn't make sense. And then we look at, well, are they a blessing to the nations? They're definitely a blessing to Egypt, but that doesn't really make sense. And so maybe when we slow down enough, we actually see like Exodus is kind of confusing. We don't actually at first understand how this is just another story within the biggest story. But right away on day one, we picked up on a couple details. A couple details that would connect Exodus to Genesis. And the first one is we saw some things that kind of sounded like Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is that verse that you're going to hear almost everywhere, every week, where it talks about how the offspring, the seed of the woman, would defeat the seed of the serpent. Okay? We got this promise. It was, it's also called like the first gospel presentation in all of the Bible. The fancy word for it, I don't even know how to pronounce it, is something like proto-evangelium. The first gospel in the Bible. The seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. That is, that's the end of the story. We get told right away at the beginning. And we actually saw it in Exodus. We saw a detail that reminded us that it's the same story. It is a story about the head crusher defeating the heel bruiser. The seed versus the snake, because we saw Pharaoh. And we caught on that right away, Pharaoh is the anti-hero. He is the symbolic seed of the snake. And what's a cool little detail that I found out is that often the pharaohs would even have an emblem of a snake on their headdress. Nice little hint for us. But here we are, we see him, the seed of the snake wanting to defeat the children of God. His first effort to do that was he ordered that all of the male Israelite babies be killed at birth. And maybe we relish in the fact that we saw some women step up and be the heroes. And actually, it's a really fun thing to look at through the book of Exodus, or even throughout the whole, the whole Old Testament, of women being these quiet, meek heroes as the Hebrew midwives refused to kill those babies. But then Pharaoh just went at it a different way, and he had all of the male babies thrown into the Nile River. We see here that this is definitely the same story. We've got the same bad guy. But our second detail that we picked up on was that we saw a repeated word. And I hope that you guys enjoyed the moment where you saw that the word groan was used here, just as it was used in Romans 8. It says, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And maybe you guys connected. Oh yeah, 
Paul, who used the word groaning, he wanted his audience to go back and to think of the story of Exodus. So that's what was going through his mind. And we used Romans to maybe add to our understanding. What were the children of Israel, the children of God, groaning for in Exodus 2? Well, according to Paul, they are groaning to be seen as the children of God. They wanted to be treated like the children of God. They wanted to be adopted as children of God. Put yourself in their shoes, guys. If you were in slavery your entire life, if you were under the thumb of Pharaoh for your entire life, would you feel like a child of God? And then you understand why they are groaning out. This story is pretty bleak. Slavery from birth until death death, slavery, but it's more than just slavery, it's murder. And if murder doesn't awaken our emotion, maybe we need to use the word genocide, or maybe we need to see that this is like a racial cleansing. Guys, this opening scene is dark, and we are supposed to be appalled at this. We're supposed to feel uncomfortable and ask the question, what is God going to do? How is God going to respond to this suffering? Where is God Guys, we pretty much just did an overview of the entire book of Exodus in one week. And as I've told many of you, all this makes me wanna do is do like a two-year study on the book of Exodus. So if you wanna get started on that, go for it, please. So we can't talk about everything. So I had to be very choosy on what we we're gonna talk about from the book of Exodus. But I want us to talk about this question. If, if we're going to answer the question, where is God? I think what we can look for in this last week of text is, when does God come near? Okay, and if you're a note taker, you'll actually see I'm a little bit more organized than normal and I actually have a list for you to write out. When does God come near in the book of Exodus? The first one is that God came near in the plagues. Okay, you guys saw from the heavens, God responds, right? It says that the cries of the people of Israel went up to heaven and so we catch on that there's a distance. There's a difference. They see God is up in heaven and here they are in Egypt as slaves. Their cries went up and God responds and the showdown begins. Serpent versus seed. The man who thinks he's God and the one true God. And these plagues, one after another, revealed the strong arm of God. The plagues revealed that God is just and that he is powerful. And we spent more time on that final plague, a plague that maybe is familiar to a lot of us, that of the firstborn, the Passover. So this is a pretty familiar, and it helped us see our thesis, right? Our thesis, as we're trying to grapple with this idea of suffering, what we see from Genesis to Revelation is that for the children of God, somehow in some mysterious or paradoxical way, we will see that suffering is the means to our victory. That's what we're looking for. So here we are, and we see the children of God who are going to find revelation and liberation through judgment. The firstborn of each family would be passed over from the spirit of death. They would be passed over. And when that firstborn was passed over, it's like the whole family was being passed over as if that lamb's death counted as a death for that whole family. The suffering that we're supposed to see in this last plague is the suffering of the lamb. And we notice how this story pointed us back to Genesis 22. The story in Exodus 12 pointed us back to the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, where we saw that the sacrifice of the ram would be a sufficient payment or a sufficient substitute in satisfying the judgment of God. But when we lay these stories next to each other, guys, 
Sure, it gives us some answers, but it also brings up some big questions. So we asked last week, is God asking Abraham to murder his son? And then we asked this week, is God murdering the firstborns? And you all hated me for that question. You're gonna see it one more time. That's a hard question. It's important for us to ask those hard questions, to slow down and to have good conversation about it. And sometimes we have to pull from bigger ideas like the character of God and other parts in the Bible. But actually this time, guys, there was an answer right there in Exodus 12, 12, where God said that he was going through and enacting judgments, not murdering, enacting judgments. There's a big difference there. Instead of being appalled that God would ask this of Abraham last week, or instead of being just disgusted and, and appalled that God would, would go through the land of Egypt and kill these firstborns, what about instead of being appalled by that, we were in awe that God provided a way out? What if we marveled at the fact that on Mount Moriah, God provided a way out for Isaac through the ram? And then in that terrifying night of the Passover, if we turned our attention and we marveled at the way God provided for his people, that God would extend such mercy and such a provision through the lamb. And you guys know this, ultimately the Passover points forward. The Passover points ahead to Christ, to a much bigger story of deliverance. When a just God could condemn us, he provided a way out. And guys, I can't help but see Christ in like some of these small details. I can't help but smile when I think about on Mount Moriah, Abraham turning his attention to a ram who was caught by his horns in a thicket. I can't smile, I can't help but smile when I see a lamb with a crown of thorns. I can't help but smile when I think about that night on Passover as they are painting their door frames, those wooden door frames with blood, I can't help but think about a splintered cross made of wood that would be painted with the blood of a Passover lamb. The nod to Christ is profound here, that our sin would be passed over when God sees our faith in Jesus. Guys, these are fun connections to make, these are fun puzzle pieces to put together, but what does it mean for our life? Do we just put this in our bank for Bible trivia or can we actually change our lives this week? And this is what I was drawn to when I was working on this, guys. When I think of that night of Passover and I think about my little family of five being inside our home and we've painted our doorframe with the blood of a lamb, do we go inside and like play Yahtzee and watch Netflix? No, we're terrified. Right? We hunker down behind that mark of blood and we're terrified and we're trembling, but we obeyed anyway. I wonder if there's an, an invitation for us here to try and obey before the fear leaves us. What if we learn to obey before we felt like it? There's a friend of mine from the Sunday night Bible study that has been such a good example for me in this way. For two years, I have watched this friend just be presented with these opportunities to obey, to make these really big leaps of faith. And you know what guys, I would not call her an optimist. 
I would say that she is gritty. I would say that each time that God has presented her with a way to, to display faith, she's had to scrape the bottom of the bucket to get there. It's not always poetic. It's not always pretty. In fact, it's often filled with a little bit of doubt and a little bit of anger. And she just has to work it out. Every single step for her has taken quite the process. She's had to dig deep and she has grit, guys. I think there's an invitation for us here as women to not wait until we feel like it to obey, to not wait for the fear, the anxiety, the depression to leave, but to say, no, I'm going to obey. I'm going to act out in faith. And you know what, guys? I would rather be among a group of women who are scrappy, even if that means we're a little moody or a little angry at times, but we're obeying rather than waiting to feel like it. Sometimes duty precedes delight but that delight will come. Guys, if all you have at this point in the study is a mustard seed of faith, your good news is that that's all you need. God will take that mustard seed of faith. He will see your faith, just like he saw the blood on the door frames that night. And he blessed it. He blessed those people. Okay, where else do we see God's nearness? So we saw it in the plagues, but now moving a little bit quicker, guys. Next, we see that the Passover night, it liberates the people of God. Okay, we see some Romans 8 language in there as we see the children of God being revealed as the children of God and they are led out of slavery. And what shows up next is the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Guys, if you wanna learn more about this, go back into some of our old teachings. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, so I have managed to teach on it several times, whether it applied or not. Go and look up some of our teachings on Exodus 14. But what I wanna show us for tonight, guys, here they are being led in the desert by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And of course, there's some some easy to grab applications. I mean, think about this. You're walking in a desert and God shows up as a cloud and it shades you from the direct heat of the desert. And we get that in our hearts, don't we? Or maybe we see the fire, the towering inferno leading them and we think, oh, that's beautiful. He's lighting their way in the darkness or he's warming them in the cold desert nights. But guys, could it also be an invitation to see that God is a God of power and might and the response to a huge thundercloud being over you or a towering inferno? It's not like, oh yeah, there's God. It's like, oh my word, there's God. And it invokes awe. But that pillar, it led the people of God to the Red Sea. And here, once again, we pick up on a biblical theme. God is going to make dry land come out of chaotic waters. God is giving his children a road through the desert, through the waters. Now guys, here's what I wanna draw out. There's so much to be said about waters and I love to teach about it, but something new that I've learned in this study. If you go back to this time for these people, there were not uh, airplanes. There were not huge cruise ships. There were not interstates, okay? Lands were often... Um, given their boundaries by waters. People did not cross waters the way we cross waters now. And so they became these natural boundaries. Waters, although they were seen as chaotic, they were also seen as making separation and distinction. Just like we saw in creation, when we saw with Noah, and now we see it here. God is doing something when he brings his children through waters. But what we should see here that God is indicating something new is happening. When you see someone come out of the waters in the Bible, ask the question, what new thing just began? What new thing started here? 
We see God's children cross through the Red Sea and we should feel excited. Something in the past is over, something new is beginning. Maybe we could even take one moment and think about it. Wait a minute, this isn't a first for Moses. How about baby Moses who was pulled out of the Nile? He was found among the reeds. The Red Sea was also called the Sea of Reeds. And we see there's a little bit of a repeat here. Just like God was about to do something huge in the life of Noah, God is now about to do something new for his children as they are pulled out of the Red Sea. Every time God comes near, he is revealing himself. What is God revealing in the pillars? He is saying, I am a God of order. I am a God of distinction. And I am a God who brings newness. We need to believe that for our own lives. Where else does God draw near? He came near at Mount Sinai. And we didn't have much time in this in our homework, guys, but the pillars led the people of God to the base of Mount Sinai and Moses and sometimes Moses and Aaron and sometimes the elders were invited up the mountain, but only Moses was led all the way up to the top of the mountain because that's where God was. That's where the presence of God was and it was displayed with thunder and lightning and this heavy cloud. It was like the most holy place on top of the mountain. And there God met with him. And the people of God were told to stay away from even the base of the mountain. Once again, being told that God is powerful and holy and it should evoke a healthy fear and awe. God is communicating something about himself over and over again. Look for it in the book of Exodus. More than, more than most books, God is saying, I can be known. I am teaching you about myself. Guys, imagine that you're the children of God. Okay, you are a young pilgrim. I mean, the plagues would have blown you away because God had been silent for hundreds of years and now all of a sudden he's showing up. But then he comes even closer in the pillar and then, then he's there at your camp at the top of this mountain. But guys, he gets even closer because God didn't stay on top of Mount Sinai. See, there on top of Mount Sinai, it's almost like he was at the top of a ladder. It's almost like he was on his throne, but he doesn't stay there. As if climbing down a ladder, as if coming off his throne, God descends Mount Sinai and he tells his children, build me a house, build me a tabernacle that I might dwell with you. I'm moving into the neighborhood children, build me a house. The top of the mountain felt close, I'm sure, for those people as they saw the theophanies, the revelations of God, but then he came even closer and their minds are blown, guys. God moves into this tabernacle, which would later become a temple. And again, if you want to learn about the tabernacle and the temple, go back on our podcast to, uh, we just spent two weeks on a study called Where God's, God Dwells, talking about the tabernacle. But here's what I wanna pull out right now, guys. One, everything in that tabernacle reveals something about God. So can I say it again? Every time God comes close, why is it? Because he's telling us, I can be known. Yes, I have some mystery to me. I am beyond your comprehension, but I can be known. Everything in the tabernacle, from the fabrics to the pieces of furniture, revealed something about God. Secondly, everything in the tabernacle pointed backwards. The tabernacle actually was designed to look like Eden. From the colors of the fabric to the lampstand that looked like the tree of life to the cherubim that were engraved above the most holy place, 
reminding us of the two cherubim that stood outside the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle was a new Eden, a portable Eden, as if God was saying, I still will dwell with you. But just like the Passover, the tabernacle pointed forward because the tabernacle was a type of Christ. Just like the Passover whispered of Christ, so the tabernacle would whisper of Christ. The tabernacle, later the temple, it does. It tells us God's with us, but how much more obvious would, the, would it be that God is with us than when Christ, God himself, would come down that ladder, would come off his throne, just like climbing down Mount Sinai and coming to his people and saying, children, I'm moving into the neighborhood. And maybe just like the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was covered in just plain goat skin on the outside. And we think, yeah, Jesus was described as just looking like an ordinary man, nothing that would make us turn our gaze to him. But on the inside, that tabernacle spoke of Eden and of heaven and of glory and splendor. And we nod as we understand like Jesus on the inside housed the glory and the splendor of God. The tabernacle pointed backwards to Eden and it pointed forward to Christ. God came near from the plagues to the pillars to the top of Mount Sinai to the camp of the people of God in the tabernacle. God is closer than the people of God could ever have imagined. But what does this say about us? Where do all these cool connection points continue to inform the way we live as women, guys? How do these puzzle pieces of Exodus help us to suffer well? Where do you fit in the story? Again, I have points, here we go. One, I probably forgot to keep counting, didn't I? With those other ones. Plague, pillar, Sinai, tabernacle, four. Here we go. Where do we fit in the story? One, when in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. Where do you fit into the story, guys? You are no longer in Egypt. If you are in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, you are no longer stuck in Egypt. You have been liberated. Your sin does not have the defining voice in your life. You have been called out of Egypt. But number two, you are not yet in your promised land. Ladies, your inheritance and your reward are still to come. Remember how we have talked about that you are a child of God, but there is a level of that that is yet to be revealed. There's a more full sense of our identity still to come. So ladies, you're not in Egypt, but you're not yet in Canaan. You're not in your promised land. Therefore, you are an exile. Therefore, you groan as an exile. Just like the people of God, you are a sojourner and you are away from home. Ladies, some of you feel that. Some of you feel exile more than the rest of us today. Some of you feel exhausted or lost and you are longing for home. You are longing for the day when all the tears will be wiped away. When your body will function brightly. You are longing for your home. You are longing for the day when that serpent will no longer bruise the heel, but will be crushed. You feel it. And it is so hard to stand in front of this room and to know so many of your stories. 
some acute and some really chronic, some with a little bit of drama right now and some that are so quiet and so isolated that you feel alone. You guys do not need me to convince you that you're exiles. We are away from our home and it hurts. We understand that we were made for more than this. We understand intrinsically that the world is not as it ought to be. We are sojourners and we are exiles. And here comes our validation. Here's me pushing a big old dose of validation across the table, guys. If you hate your suffering and your pain, that is why. Because you are far from home. You are an exile. What is the truth that we read in Exodus for the exiles? That God is near. He is near to you. He is near to the brokenhearted. We may be a wilderness people, but the text showed us over and over and over and over again that God is near. He is closer than you could ever imagine. He's a God of justice who will flex his power when you need him most. He is a God of comfort who will light your way in the darkness. He is a God who will shade you from the direct heat of your time in the desert. He is a God who will not just stay on top of a mountain talking about how powerful he is, but he will invite you close. Praise God that we are free from our Egypt. Praise God that there is a home that is awaiting us. But there is even more from Exodus. There is more to be said about us and where we fit into this story. Because we read briefly this week that we are a royal priesthood. Exodus 19, four through, th four through six says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Stop, relish in this, guys. Here God is saying, I bore you up on eagles' wings. Did that take you back to Genesis 1, where God says that the Spirit was hovering over the waters? It's like he was up to bat to do something good. Once again, God is describing himself as a maternal bird working for the good of his children. He says, I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And here it is. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Ladies, he called them out of slavery and into service to himself. That's what it means to be a priesthood. He called them out of slavery into service to himself, drawn out, but to be drawn in. God called them out, even carried them out of slavery, we read, but not so that they could be autonomous. We need to tease this out, ladies. We need to figure out if we really understand what this means and if we're living like it. God did not call his people out of Egypt so that they could sip wine and eat cheese and crackers in the wilderness. He called them out of slavery so that they would serve him. He didn't call them out so that they could call the shots. He didn't call them out of slavery so that they could do what they want, so that they could live their best life. He called them out so that they would serve him. Freedom from means freedom to. Freedom from slavery means freedom to serve. This is not original to me, but I've lost track of how many wonderful authors and commentators use this language. 
God called them out to be drawn in. Do you understand that you are invited while God is with you in your wilderness, your invitation is to be drawn in as a priest. So what is a priest? Well, what we saw in the book of Exodus is that it, it looks like it's starting with Aaron. Aaron was told to be a priest, and then we see that it's extended to the tribe of Levi, which was the tribe that Moses came from. And then we see that it's then talked about for the whole people of God, all the children of God are a royal priesthood. A priest is someone who would work the tabernacle, who would make the sacrifices, who blessed the people, who prepared them for war. A priest, a priest would reflect and bear the image of God. Maybe think of it like this. A priest is the person who would stand in the gap between heaven and earth. A person who was there to serve and to carry the names of the children of God before God. Okay, guys, there's more we could say, but I don't think we have to go any further without application. How does this help us suffer well? If we're to understand our identity as priests, one, right away, our expectations are cleared up. Because if we understand that that is our identity, then we understand that we have work to do. And it feels good. It feels good to know that we have a job to do. Think about this in the tabernacle. If you go back and study it and you look at all the pieces of furniture, you will notice that there is no couch in the tabernacle. There is no reclining chair. There's no wonderful like camel leather trendy hipster couch in there. There's no beanbag. There's one chair and it's the throne of God on the mercy seat. Why is that? Because there is work to do. The priests inside that tabernacle need to bust around and work for God. They have purpose. They are priests. Ladies, our expectations need to be addressed as we try and grapple with suffering. If our expectation is that we have been saved so that we can do whatever we want, we are gravely mistaken. We have an exciting job description and it is to be a priest. Secondly, it really helps us. Oh, I'm numbering things again. No, I have no idea where these numbers came from, but that's okay. We started over with one again. Number two, it helps us respond to the sufferer next to us. If we understand that we're a priest, then when we see someone hurting, then we understand that we were built, designed, made to serve them. That person in your life that you have to serve day in and day out, can I give you the good news? Not only is God with you as you serve them, but he built you to do it. He made you to serve them. You can do it. You can do it, ladies. You can serve that hard person. You were made for this. This is an identity that was given to you from the beginning of time. This identity wasn't like a backup plan after the fall of man, but it happened before the fall of man. Ladies, if you are the one hurting. So, so first we have our expectation that we have a job description. Secondly, we see that we are equipped and empowered to serve the people around us. We're not gonna sit idly by while the world is hurting. But third, if you are the person who is hurting right now, being a priest brings a lot of comfort. If you are the one who is hurting, then what I want to invite you to see from Exodus is that your suffering does not define you. Your identity is not your pain. Hear what I'm saying. I understand that your pain is big. I understand that your burden is heavy. 
It does not have the defining voice in your life though. The identity of priest was given to you before pain entered the world. Why do I say this? Because we saw it in Genesis. We didn't see the word priest right away, but actually if we look for it, we would see in the Garden of Eden that, Abraham, or that Adam and Eve were given the job of priest. You have work to do. There's a mandate here to subdue and have dominion. You have work to do. It's my, God's like saying, it's my work and I'm giving it to you. You're going to reflect me to the world. They were supposed to guard the way of God, the place of God. So when we read, Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. We think, oh, that's so great. We wish we could be naked and not ashamed, right? Right, we read it and we think, oh man, we focus on the fact that, wow, life before shame, that would have been amazing. But do you know what? The original audience, Moses' audience, who were the first to have Genesis read over them, they would, they would hear the story and they would right away be like, oh, so Adam and Eve are the priests of Eden. Okay, and then you read that they're naked and you would go, wait, they're not supposed to be naked. Priests are not meant to be naked. They're meant to be robed. They are meant to be robed in splendor and in glory. And they would think, okay, maybe it's still coming. Maybe with maturity, they will be clothed. You know, maybe after a test or after they get some wisdom between good and evil, they will be then clothed. And then we jump back in and we say, oh, but they do get clothed, right? We saw that. We saw that God clothed them and we get excited because we saw that God clothed them with what? animal skins and we think ha ha it's pointing to Jesus and we feel excited about that and that's correct we see God make the first animal sacrifice to cover their shame and we feel comfort in that moment but if you were Moses's original audience you would say oh no they're being clothed in an animal skin well a dead animal according to our law is unclean so yeah they're covered their shame is covered, but every day that they wear those skins, they have a reminder that they are unclean and that would have to be dealt with. And then the theme of priesthood picks up in Exodus and, and much ink is spilled on the clothes that the priests would wear. The clothes that the priests would wear were not dead animal skins, but they were extravagant. Multiple layers of fine fabric and jewels. Guys, they had these pieces that were covered with gems. They had a wonderful hat. The priests were clothed with glory and splendor. And if you looked even closer, you would see that the priests were made to look like a small tabernacle. This image bearer of God was like a walking tabernacle, a portable, an even more portable tabernacle. God's people were clothed with glory and splendor. We see that go from Genesis then into Exodus. God's glory was on display whenever people saw the priest. So now as we close this down, let's circle back. What was our question, guys? How will God respond to suffering? Well, we saw pretty clearly he comes near. And then we saw that he invites his people near. Right, he calls us out that we might be drawn near, but that's where we have to stop and say, how's that possible? How can a sometimes rebellious, a sometimes stubborn, a sometimes stuck person like myself be in the presence, be near to a holy God, right? I mean, we've seen it clearly, God is holy, so therefore nothing impure can be in his presence. How in the world then can this holy God draw these people in that are sinful and rebellious? 
How is it possible for some people who are unclean to be drawn near to God? The only way is if he clothes us. We are not naked and we are not clothed in animal skins. Our uncleanliness has been dealt with in Christ. We who needed covered were given the identity of priest and we are robed in Christ's garments. Isaiah 61 says that we are clothed with garments of salvation, that we are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. So we don't look down and feel shame. We don't look down and see nakedness. God doesn't look at us and see fig leaves that we've patched together to make our clothes. And he doesn't look at us and see slaves racks. When God looks at us, he sees the robes of Christ. When God gives us an identity, he also gives us the wardrobe to go with it. And the Bible illustrates this beautifully. Many of you guys know the story in the gospels of the prodigal son. The short of this story that Jesus tells is of a young man who asks for his inheritance early and runs away and parties it up. He rebels from his family, from his father. He takes all the money and he goes and he goes to downtown Iowa City and he parties it up. And when all the money runs out, and I imagine that his clothes are ragged and torn and he smells like pig scraps, he sees he has no other option. He must return home. He decides that he will come home and he'll come home as a slave. He will work off his debts. He will become his father's slave, his father's employee. And so he begins that journey home from exile. And it says that when he is still far off down the road, his father sees him. And as he nears, ready to be a slave, ready to let his identity be his sad story, his father, his extravagant father runs to him and embraces him. His father draws him near. And he says, get off those rags. And he gives him a robe. He gives him a robe as if to remind him of his identity. You are my child. You are my heir. You have an inheritance still. He gives him a robe. He clothes him. He covers him. He reminds him of his identity. He even gives him his ring as if to say, you are my business partner. You have work to do here. That father ran toward him and drew him near. And this is our invitation, guys. Our pain and our suffering do not have the defining voice in our life. You are a priest. It is a big job and God is with you as you do it. So the invitation for us is to clothe ourselves with Christ's garments. The invitation for us is to let Christ give us identity even in our suffering and to find so much comfort and so much joy. Ladies, I don't know all of your situations, but you can do it. You can suffer well, whatever that means for you. 
even if you're still afraid, even if you're still ticked off, you can do it. You can start over yet again. Get your identity from the love of God and nowhere else and hide yourself there within Christ.